0: Welcome to another ABI podcast of a conversation with an interesting figure in the insolvency world. I'm Felicia Turner, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm talking with Roberta DeAngelis. Roberta is the Acting General Counsel for the Executive Office for United States Trustees. Between 2003 and 2005, she served as the Acting United States Trustee for Region 3, which encompasses Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. She also serves as an Assistant U.S. Trustee for the District of New Jersey. She joined the program in 1999 as a manager of its New Jersey office and during 2001 and 2002 she also served as the Assistant U.S. Trustee for the District of Delaware where she was instrumental in opening the Wilmington office for the program. Prior to joining the program Roberta was a partner with Fox Rothschild in New Jersey in the creditors rights department and had been a bankruptcy practitioner in private practice for approximately 20 years. Thank you for joining me today Roberta. Thank you very much for having me, Felicia. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, As I'm sure most of our listeners are aware that United States trustees are statutorily charged with supervising the administration of Chapter 11 cases and supervising and appointing any trustees or examiners in such cases. Further, BAPSEPA changed some aspects of Chapter 11 practice and some rather significantly. Today, we're going to discuss some select Chapter 11 issues that are recurring for all United States Trustees in big, medium, and even in some small cases. These issues also present unique challenges or considerations to ABI's non-U.S. Trustee members, such as financial advisors, attorneys, and judges. I think it will be extremely helpful today, Roberta, for our membership to hear the U.S. Trustee's program's positions and reasoning on some of these hot issues. So let's start with one of the hot ones, key employee retention plans, better known as CURPS and severance plans. Um, BAPSEPA added subsection C to section 503 to limit administrative expense payments made to insiders of a debtor. And I know that financial advisors and attorneys for debtors in possession have been concerned about the potential detrimental effect these limitations may have on successful reorganizations. And it's very much public information that the issue has been addressed in big cases like Dana in the Southern District of New York. And I know it came up for me as a U.S. Trustee in Region 21, even in smaller cases. So why don't you tell us about the program's general approach to these issues, including the program's rationale behind its approach and how the program views the limitations.
1: Well, let me begin by thanking you for giving me the opportunity to talk with you today about the U.S. trustee program and several issues of importance to us in Chapter 11 cases. The program's position on these issues has been set forth in documents in many cases, but your invitation provides a forum to discuss these matters in greater detail, and so for that um, I want to, uh, to thank you. You know, in talking about executive management compensation plans, we can begin with the reminder that prior to 2005, the retention of valued employees through incentive payments often was sought by way of first day motions or shortly after a case filed. And the standard at that time for court determination was business judgment. And then with SEPA. Congress enacted Section 503C to restrict the allowance and the payment of administrative expenses to a debtor's officers, managers, consultants, the insiders. And it acted in response to perceptions that top management of corporate debtors, often including those who presided over the company's demise were enriching themselves with retention and other bonus payments at precisely the time that lower level employees were possibly losing retirement benefits or health benefits and sometimes even losing their jobs. The program's goal is to assure that the statute as written is enforced. As the government agency charged with enforcement of the bankruptcy code. We closely scrutinize proposed executive compensation plans to assure that they do not run afoul of Section 503C. The limitations on retention and severance payments to insiders are quite clear. So, payments are prohibited to an insider for the purpose of inducing that insider to remain with the debtor's business until certain specified limitations are met. Under the bankruptcy code, proof of a competing employment author is one such limitation, as is a determination that the services that are provided by the person are essential to the survival of the business. Similarly, with regard to severance payments, they are restricted unless a debtor can prove that the payment is part of a regular program that's available to all full-time employees And the proposed payment is not more than ten times the amount paid to non-management employees. The focus of 503 c however, is on payments to insiders. And what we see sometimes is um, we'll see a debtor arguing that corporate officers are nevertheless not insiders because they aren't in control of the debtor and they are seeking a narrow construction of the term insider in order to pay as many employees as possible. However insider is a term as you know defined by section 101.31 of the code. By using that definition it's clear that a corporate officer appointed by a board of directors is an insider notwithstanding a lack of corporate control and this is It it is a bright line. The program recognizes, however, though, that labels don't necessarily control. If a debtor can establish that it has an employee with a title vice president who, in fact, is not a vice president uh, under the normal corporate process, then that person would not be considered an insider unless that person, in fact, is in control of the debtor. So that analysis is necessary. And uh, making the determinations as to whether the proposals that uh, for different types of executive compensation in fact are applicable to the insiders of the company,
0: okay, I think that will be very helpful for our mm-hmm. listeners. I know I had to deal with the insider issue right out of the box in, in Puerto Rico in a case and and a lot of I mean one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is I think it's really important for the Chapter 11 practitioners to hear these positions outside of the context of litigation just so they can help prepare their cases. I know um, I've heard a lot of practitioners before SEPA went into effect trying to brainstorm about how to get around this new limitation not because for unethical reasons but because they really believed that this would really hurt the success of reorganization so I know that there have been some um, attempts to get around the provisions and a lot of those may have been termed as incentive plans or other ways to recharacterize plans in an effort to argue that the new 503C is not applicable. Can you tell us in general about what you've seen presented since the law went into effect and how the program analyzes these um, proposals? Sure. You're right debtors have sought to
1: avoid application of 503C to uh, bonus payments to insiders by characterizing those payments as incentives. And as a result, U.S. trustees have examined a number of creative compensation plans, some of which appeared designed to avoid the limitations of the statute, yet seemed to be tied to or had a component that was based on retention. What we've seen is that a proposed compensation plan may have an economic trigger, an incentive trigger, which the debtors rely on as a way to escape, you know, the retention restrictions. And courts have the task of parsing through these plans. The fact that the plan establishes benchmarks is not sufficient alone to cause it to escape judicial scrutiny. The um, bankruptcy court in Dana, as you mentioned earlier, viewed the initial incentive plan as a barely disguised retention plan because the performance goals were so easily met that all the executive had to do really was stay in place and they would receive the bonus. So U.S. trustees carefully examine the executive compensation plans that are filed to make sure that the real incentive is not the retention the continued retention of the insider. And the law is still evolving in this area. For example, the statutory provision does not require that the payment must be made solely to entice the employee to remain with the company. And one Delaware court said that the fact that the compensation plan had a retention component did not render it impermissible under 503 c alone. So one of the factors we examine is whether the articulated benchmarks are too easily attained. Um, We looked at a case in Massachusetts recently where the debtor proposed a bonus payment that was dependent on a successful sale. But in that case, the sale had already been negotiated and it actually was due to close in 60 days. So it didn't appear that there truly was an incentive that was uh, set out in the the plan. When we objected, the debtor withdrew the the proposal and, uh, in our view, that appeared to be a very just result under the facts of that case.
0: I'm sure that happens a lot. What about um, other kind of compensation plans you've seen?
1: Well, you know, we're looking at, generally we're looking at the retention plans and we're looking at the severance plans under the, under uh, 50C3, the severance under 503C2. I think that, that generally as we're looking at these cases, you know, what we need to do is we need to examine sort of the elements of each of the plans that are filed. So that we we look beyond the terminology that's used, and incentive plans I think have become the you know the 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 um, the compensation plan of choice. Now, with regard to incentive plans, let me tell you just a little bit about some of the things that we look for. So we look at the triggers, as I mentioned, and what you may see the U.S. trustees do. You might find a request for production of supporting documentation. We might want to uh, review if there are spreadsheets that detail performance versus projections on a quarterly basis. There may be board of director meeting minutes that are applicable here, board compensation committee minutes that might pertain. And if the debtors have retained expert witnesses, the compensation expert reports. Now these these types of documents will aid in our review and evaluation of the debtor's proposal. And one of the other things that we may do is if the debtor is a public company, we may review public filings of competitors to assess how the proposed incentive plan compares to ins- set of compensation that's paid in the industry. So we want to try to look at as much documentation as we can, and then based on that initial review, we also may want to examine the debtor's fact witness and possibly the the expert witness. I think that really what U.S. trustees are doing in these instances is is to seek to compel the debtor to meet the evidentiary burdens that the debtor has in establishing the merits of the type of compensation proposals that that um, they're putting before the courts and. I guess the other thing that I would say is when these issues had been raised on first day, then we might be asking questions of the debtor at the IDI, the initial debtor interview and at the 341 meeting so that we can try to determine as, as quickly as possible the nature and scope of the payments.
0: Right, now, I would always encourage when I was in the program council to come forward ahead of time informally with the U.S. Trustee Office so we could perhaps work through some of the issues before it was on file. Roberta, can you give us an idea of how much or how often these issues under 503C arise for the program?
1: Well, since enactment of BAPSEPA through December 2007, U.S. trustees have filed over 50 objections to executive compensation plans and that is exclusive of the matters in which debtors have been persuaded to either withdraw or modify their plans. Sort of as a follow-up to what you said earlier, you know, when you encourage these debtors to come in and talk with you early on, sometimes you can avoid the um, the need to file uh, formal objections. These compensation plans are are more prevalent in the large public cases than in the smaller cases, and clearly this is an area where the U.S. trustees will continue to be active. Just to recap a bit, you know, the retention plans that we discussed are governed by 503C1 and the severance plans by 503C2. The other extraordinary compensation plans, including what we were talking about, you know, the incentive plans, they have to, sort of meet muster under 503C3, and this requires a different analysis because that provision doesn't have the same specific limitations as the other two, but that requires that the debtor establish that the plan be justified by the facts and circumstances of the case. Now, in light of this standard, it appears to us that the plan should not be approved simply as a proper exercise of the debtor's business judgment, which Mm -hmm. was the pre-BAPSIPA plan. So we will continue to pursue uh, the analysis of these types of plans, and then where appropriate, bring our objections to to require basically that the debtor meet its evidentiary burden so that the court can appropriately make its
0: determinations okay thank you I'm sure this will continue to be an issue for you but in the program but that explanation uh, will help our members understand the program's position let's move to another chapter 11 topic of the day there's a new federal um, rule of bankruptcy procedure rule 6003 which is about first-day orders why don't you tell us about the rule and, and what the intent behind this new, new rule was, in the program's opinion anyway? I'm very pleased that you chose this topic because we
1: are seeing attempts to evade the applicability of Rule 6003 or undercut its applicability in, in at least one instance, which is that of the retention of professionals. So new Rule 6003 became effective on December 1, 2007, and it states that the court shall not grant relief within 20 days after the filing of the petition, absent a finding of immediate and irreparable harm regarding employment applications under Rule 2014, a motion to use seller lease property of the estate including a motion to pay a pre-petition claim and as a note i would indicate that would be critical vendor payments (laughs) an issue that received significant attention in 2004 with the kmart decision and then third a motion to assign or uh, assume an unexpired lease or executive contract the intent of this rule was to slow down first day practice By slowing it down, it enables the U.S. trustee to appoint an official committee of unsecured creditors, and then that committee can weigh in on many of the important early decisions that need to be made in these cases. The advisory committee to the – to the – to promulgation of this rule in their minutes Indicate that the rule was also designed to address differences in first-day practice that have influenced choice of venue of debtors council so I think two components we want to slow it slow down the process a little bit and also assure that Venue selection is not being made based solely on the attractive venues
0: Okay, well, I'm sure this rule is um, coming up a lot in the context of employment applications which you referenced before so why don't you talk about that specifically a little bit the uh, as i said
1: the, you know the court can grant can grant uh, relief in the first 20 days only upon the showing of immediate and irreparable harm the program will object to requests for interim or emergency rel- relief absent that kind of showing and in this instance, with respect to retention of professionals, it, it really seems to be somewhat counterintuitive. I mean, the rule specifically says you need to make the showing of immediate and irreparable harm in order to have an employment application reviewed under 2014. Now, you know, we, I talked a minute about venue selection. Well, there are some differing practices throughout the country. In a minority of jurisdictions, interim retention orders were entered. In most of, or in the majority of cases, most of the courts wait until the retention has been filed and the applications appropriately vetted before an order is entered. Some debtors have argued with respect to this new rule that a debtor won't have a lawyer in the first 20 days of the case. And that constitutes immediate and irreparable harm unless the court enters an interim order. This argument appears flawed, you know, to, uh, to 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 me. It seems that under the practice that we've employed for all these years, applications were made, orders were entered. Generally, the order would say that that the uh, retention was approved as of the date that the uh, application was filed, and we never had a, an issue as to whether c- a debtor would be without counsel during that, that period. I think it's important to note the drafters of the rule specifically included Rule 2014 in this rule. and. You know, a debtor in every large Chapter 11 case, particularly those that need first day motions, will need an attorney in the first 20 days. Obviously, the drafters of the rule knew that as well. And so it seems illogical that the purpose of the rule was in some way um, to, um, to limit the, 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 the ability to retain counsel. In a ruling in a recent Southern District New York case, the uh, court noted that it could not imagine a case where the 20-day delay in entry of a professional retention order would be a source of immediate and irreparable harm to the debtor's estate and the court noted that rather what the rule may do is give rise to at best a bit of anxiety on the part of professionals but clearly not immediate and irreparable harm so we believe that the that 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 court got it right yeah well and anxiety Mm -hmm.
0: is just part of representing debtors in possession I would say (laughs) what about critical vendor motions do you have anything to add about the rule in that context
1: oh certainly you know we will closely examine the critical vendor motions filed as first aid pleadings we want to compel the debtors to prove that the vendors uh, in fact are critical to the debtor's survival I think while jurisdictions are split over whether critical vendor payments are appropriate generally it seems appropriate that an unsecured creditors committee have an opportunity to be heard when the legality and scope of a particular critical vendor motion is going to be heard. So we definitely will uh, would want to try to delay the, the hearing on critical vendor motions until the, the committee is in place and, and until
0: compliance, the notice compli- requirements under under this rule are met. Well, in conclusion on this issue, how would you summarize the program's approach to this new rule and standard? I would say in summary that Rule 6003
1: clearly contemplates that the debtor present evidence to the court upon which the court may base a finding of immediate and irreparable harm in order for the types of motions that are restricted by the rule in in order for them to be heard conclusory statements in the first day affidavits or declarations should not suffice to meet this burden and I would also indicate that the use of interim retention orders are inconsistent with this rule
0: okay thank you well let's move on to a really really hot issue um, about or a few hot issues about Section 1104 of the code and appointments and supervision of trustees and examiners. I know that takes up a lot of the program's time and resources. and um, We could probably do a podcast for several hours just on 1104. That's but, true. <laughs> <laughs> for today, let's just focus on two aspects of 1104. And the first one, let's focus on the new subsection E, which was added as part of BAPSEPA. Why don't you tell us about this provision and how it came about and the purpose it serves?
1: BAPSEPA amended 1104 to require that the U.S. trustee file a motion seeking the appointment of a Chapter 11 trustee if there are reasonable grounds to suspect that members of the debtor's top management or governing body participated in actual fraud, dishonesty, or criminal conduct in the debtor's management or in the public financial reporting. 1104E was enacted in response to major Chapter 11 cases, cases such as Enron and WorldCom where trustees were not appointed even in the face of substantial evidence of prepetition fraud by the debtor's management. And this new provision seeks to add transparency and accountability to the Chapter 11 process by requiring that independent fiduciaries be sought in cases where management cannot be trusted to exercise you know the fiduciary responsibilities of a debtor in possession so I think that really was what underlay the the uh, the addition of
0: 1104 e to the trustee examiner provisions okay. well how's the program approached its new responsibilities under this subsection
1: well, we, we definitely take these new responsibilities very seriously. If a debtor files Chapter 11 in the wake of substantial allegations of fraud or other serious misconduct, U.S. trustees will quickly assess whether grounds exist for the appointment of a trustee. It's important to note, I think, Felicia, that while 1104E requires that we file a motion based on reasonable grounds to, to believe or to suspect, that this provision does not support or create an independent basis for bringing a motion. It then basically goes on to say that the motion must be filed consistent with 1104A. And so we still have to allege the cause that must exist for the appointment of a trustee under 1104A. One of the things that U.S. trustees may do is quickly seek to take a Rule 2004 exam to explore the allegations of serious misconduct uh, or fraud to determine whether we have the ability to, to meet our burdens under 1104A, consistent with the mandate under 1104E. If we cannot establish sufficient evidence to support the immediate appointment of a trustee, One of the things that you may see the U.S. trustees do is seek the appointment of an examiner to investigate in order to determine whether further action might be needed based upon the examiner's findings.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Situations that warrant, you know, further investigation are those in which management has been replaced, for example, by a responsible person or by a chief restructuring officer, particularly where that individual seeks to act like a trustee.
0: Well, thank you for those comments on 1104E. I think it's particularly good for our listeners to hear you talk about 1104E and how it works with 1104A, because I think that that nuance is often lost and that some practitioners and even judges, in my experience, assumed that it was a new ground when it really wasn't. But let's go back to your last point that leads me into the next hot topic about when management has been replaced by a responsible person or a CRO. I had to litigate um, this issue quite a bit in Florida, which I know you remember because we had many telephone conversations Mm -hmm. about it. In small and medium and some bigger cases, and I know it's a hot issue because it's a subject of a debate at our upcoming conference um, in the Southwest in September, but that's the issue of whether and under what circumstances the facts behind a motion to approve the retention of a CRO constitute cause for the appointment of a trustee under 1104A. So why don't you tell us about the program's approach to those cases where debtors in possession have either already elected or are seeking to elect a CRO?
1: Well, let me start by saying that a CRO may frequently bring their expertise to bear on a troubled company and aid in its rehabilitation. What's important for the U.S. trustee program is to examine the way in which that individual is brought into the company and the authority that's given to this individual. And, and, and that's what requires scrutiny on our part. If a debtor in possession elects a CRO as a corporate officer, and uh, sometimes that that happens before the, the debtor files the Chapter 11 proceeding, and sometimes it happens after the petition has been filed. But in that instance, where the debtor has acted in accordance with its normal corporate governance, then ordinarily the U.S. trustee program is not involved. The selection and the appointment of officers consistent with regular corporate governance is the prerogative of the, you know, corporation's board of directors. Where we have an issue, the program has an issue, is when that CRO or that responsible person is brought in in a way that seems to be outside of or in a in a way that's somewhat different from the normal corporate structure now let me mention that also with respect to retention of CROs post filing the program does have an established protocol Mm -hmm. for how a debtor could engage the services of a CRO and other personnel within that financial advisory firm and that protocol was developed a number of years ago we call it the J. Alex protocol. Yes,
0: I remember. Okay. Uh,
1: it was developed to resolve a number of issues that arose in in particular in two cases in Delaware in which J. Alex was involved and that protocol has worked well in practice for a number of years and the program uses that same analysis with respect to the retention of CROs in, um, in all of its jurisdictions throughout the, um, throughout the country. One of the most important requirements of that protocol is that the CRO and others from the, the CRO's firm work under the management and the guidance of an independent board of directors. In cases where the CRO is brought in and the board either has resigned or the CRO is vested with complete authority to run and manage the company, that's that's the situation that raises problems for us. We also have problems in a case where pre-petition fraud has occurred, and the replacement of tainted officers with a CRO uh, doesn't, in, you know, in a sense, doesn't insulate the debtor from a trustee motion if the CRO answers to the tainted board of directors. The that board that presided over the debtor while the fraud had occurred. So, the replacement by shareholders of members of a board of directors might be effective only in cases, you know, where shareholders are not themselves tainted. If, uh, for example, the debtor is a closely held corporation or a limited liability company and the controlling shareholder or the member was actively engaged in the fraudulent conduct, then in the view of the program, the appointment of a Chapter 11 uh, Chapter 11 trustee, is the only proper remedy, and a CRO in that instance doesn't really
0: answer the the demands of the case. That reminds me of a case that I litigated where we were getting at the issue of who did the CRO report to, and the proposed CRO was on the stand, and when we asked that question, the answer he gave was the name of, the Chapter 11 debtor attorney, and but we won that case, and we got a trustee. It also involved 1104-E mm-hmm. issues. So, so if you just briefly describe the most clear-cut scenario that results in an objection by the U.S. trustee to a motion for a CRO, what
1: would that be? I think that, that it probably is any effort to give the CRO all the rights and powers of a trustee, and to make him or her answerable only to the court. That situation ordinarily will give rise to an objection by the US trustee who will, in that instance, seek the appointment of a trustee. In our analysis, either a debtor in possession governs in accordance with applicable non-bankruptcy law, or a Chapter 11 trustee is appointed. The code specifically says that the bankruptcy court may not appoint a receiver, and the U.S. trustee program believes that, you know, the few cases that have approved the appointment of a responsible person, which really, I mean, the only sort of designation that you can give it uh, would be akin to a receiver, that kind of appointment in lieu of a trustee, we think that, that those cases that did that really were wrongly decided. Yeah.
0: In essence, and these are my words, not the programs, but it's somewhat of an end-run attempt around 11.04. Uh, do you have any closing remarks or observations you'd like to offer? I mean, there are so many other Chapter 11 topics we could have talked about. We, we might have to have three or four more podcasts. But um, in conclusion, if there's anything else you have to offer, I'm sure they'd love to hear it.
1: Well, let me let me just thank you, Felicia, for making me <laughs> feel so welcome. Uh, and so comfortable here, and and I want to thank the ABI for inviting me to speak about these issues. As you said, they're representative of some of the important issues for the programs that arise in these cases, Uh, and I'd be happy to come back uh, to talk about some of the others. I think that I hope our talk here today will help inform The bankruptcy community not only of the positions that we take on these issues but also of some of the analysis that underlies them I think that the program is mindful of the economic concerns that underlie all chapter 11 matters we act to bring transparency to the system to assure integrity in the process and as you had indicated earlier our staff always remain open and accessible to discussing Issues when they arise and hopefully arise, you know, arriving at some consensual resolutions. So,
0: thank you very much. Well, thank you, Roberta. I'm sure our listeners will find this conversation interesting and informative. And I know from personal experience that you and your attorneys in the executive office give a lot of thought to these issues. And I hope our listeners can now agree, if they didn't before, that the program's legal decisions are in good hands under your advisement. And the efforts of you and your employees are essential and invaluable to the integrity of the Chapter 11 process. So thanks to all of you for listening. From the ADI. I'm Felicia Turner.